welcome to the Brain Health Podcast. I'm so enthusiastic to present this podcast to you, whose purpose is to spread awareness and knowledge of brain health. And to do that, we have great guests that come with science, that come with technology, that come with their most real human experience. And this podcast is especially addressing any persons interested in brain health, as much as patients, caregivers, healthcare professionals and scientists in the field. Embarked on this journey of the podcast, there is currently me, Alessia, and Kim, who is here on my side. Let me introduce myself first. I'm Alessia. I'm a life science IT consultant concerned with technologies that can help improving services and therapies for patients. And I'm especially advocating for better accommodations for people with brain conditions, but also for people with learning disabilities such as dyslexia. For example, I helped co-designing Subautism at Work program, which offers jobs for people with autism ADHD. And here with me, there is Kim. Yeah, hello, everybody. This is Kim. In my daily life, I am the CEO and co-founder of Brain Plus. We work with digital therapeutics and apps for helping people recover from brain injury, stroke, mental disorder, and so, so forth by recovering their cognitive functions. Thank you, Kim. And here is the time to introduce you with a brain snack from the interview of today. Ideally, we're going to sleep and getting up at about the same time every day. And if you're adequately slept, you don't even need an alarm clock. You'll wake up naturally. We have what's known as social jet lag. Um, where we stay up very, very late on the weekend, and then we have to get up for work on Monday, we're not functioning very well on Monday because we've disrupted our rhythms. Hi, everybody. Today we are talking about a very interesting topic to us, which is the mysteries of sleep. And we have uh, Josolette, to talk about it with us. Hi, Joe. Hi, Kim and Alessia. Hi, Joe. We're so glad to having you here today. Well, thank you very much for the opportunity to talk with you about the mysteries of sleep, which I think is an extremely compelling topic. So just so let, I will just um, introduce you um, so our listeners could know why and what you do. So Josolette is a PhD, uh, assistant professor in medicine, Cambridge Health Alliance, um, and you're a member of the Division of Sleep Medicine at Harvard Medical School. We also know that you have been trained as a clinician, educator, and researcher. You are a community advocate and educator for the importance of sleep to health, well-being, and learning. Uh, so... It looks like people have been sleeping for a long time, and you know something about it. Uh, what, is, uh, what is your take on sleep? Joe, tell us. Well, thank you first for that kind introduction. Um, when you think about it, we, we spend about a third of our lives sleeping, but it isn't just us. Um, if you actually look through the animal kingdom, you find that sleep has been preserved through evolution. Even the fruit fly, Drosophila, has a period of quiescence. Uh, reptiles have sleep uh, 
sleep cycles similar to ours. So uh, imagine how important sleep must be if it is so conserved through evolution. And if humans have been sleeping uh, about a third of their lives for millennia. So sleep continues to be conserved uh, for us, um, but the times have changed. Uh, We don't have just the night and the sunlight to organize our sleep anymore. We're involved in an experiment uh, with uh, artificial light and shift work and many changes that take us away from the way our sleep naturally evolved. We didn't actually even know how sleep worked. It used to be when people were asleep that they almost looked like they were dead. Uh, It wasn't until the 1920s that a scientist, a German scientist, Hans Berger, uh, discovered that you could record what was going on with the brain in the EEG or electroencephalogram and showed that sleep actually included different stages in which the waves uh, of Uh, electronic waves in the brain were changing over cycles during the night. So this this was a huge, uh, a hugely important discovery and really in many ways opened up the field of medicine around sleep where we can look at how sleep changes, uh, not just across species, but through the life cycle, how infants sleep differently than adults and that sleep changes during aging. All of this we, we couldn't have explored without the EEG. So many thanks to Hans Berger. Absolutely, Joe, and, and thanks for that introduction. And I think it's, it's really interesting how it seems to be part of human nature that what we don't understand, we, we usually think is, is not that important. And uh, we're, we're discovering now that that is not really the case with sleep, right? It's pretty important. So we're going to talk much more about that. Certainly, um, we need to spend enough time in bed that we have an opportunity for sleep, but we also want to make sure that we get sleep of good quality, that is, efficient sleep. Inefficient sleep is sleep that is disrupted all the time. We're we're being awakened. Sometimes it can be because we have literally disorders of sleep, but other health problems can, can interfere with sleep, a difficult sleep environment. Uh, can interfere with our sleep. So it's not just enough to spend uh, a certain amount of time in bed. The efficiency, the quality of our sleep matters also. A normal night of sleep, uh, if we are getting enough sleep for adults, is typically more than seven hours, seven to nine. We would like uh, the sleep to be as undisrupted as possible we know that the cycles of brain waves change during sleep uh, in about 90 minute cycles, 90 to 110 minutes. And during that time, we see uh, sleep changing from lighter to deeper sleep and into dream sleep. By the time we reach morning after several of these cycles, more of our sleep is dream sleep. That's why when the When you're awakened in the morning, you might very well be able to report a dream because by morning, more of your sleep time is spent dreaming. Okay. And uh, 
And so what's what's really the difference between these different types of sleep? So you mentioned the deep sleep and you mentioned the dreamlike states. So what's what's the difference between the two and what are they I mean, what are they good for? They must they must have different reasons for being, right? We're sure they have different reasons for being. Um, otherwise, they we think they would not have evolved. And honestly, being a sleep researcher is like being an astronaut. New things are being discovered all the time. We know, for example, that uh, during sleep, especially the deepest sleep, that our uh, the, the structure, the cell structure within the brain can actually realign to allow toxins from brain metabolism to drain out and, and therefore protect the brain. So we know that uh, sleep is critical to the actual health of the brain as an organ. We also know that during sleep, the uh, there is a an enhancement and a pruning of some of our neuronal connections so that what is most salient, what is most important is what is encoded and remembered for later retrieval uh, from our brains. Dream sleep, which constitutes a smaller proportion of cycles of sleep when we first go to sleep, but much more, as I said, in the morning, appears to be an important model for creativity. During our dreams, things are brought together, and all of us have this experience, that, that don't come together uh, in any rational way during the day. So it is, in a sense, a model for creativity and a building of associations across different memories and experiences um, that, have, that have happened in the past extremely powerful. Um, and, you know, as we know, seen in some cultures as taking us to a different and even spiritual dimension. Is that uh, automatical for people to achieve and uh, go through the cycle of light, deep and uh, deeper dreams leap? Or, um, or you need to do something for achieve that? You, you mentioned about, and then you mentioned about sleep, sleep efficiency. Is that connected? To- Absolutely connected. So in infancy, uh, we have uh, more of the dream sleep. As we move into adulthood, uh, we have less of the dream sleep and more of the deep sleep. As we age, the deep sleep is the part that tends to... Uh, to uh, disappear. There are people who believe that if we could reinforce and enhance deep sleep as we age, we would be protecting our memory and cognition. And uh, it would, in a sense, be like a fountain of youth for us. The, the, problem, the problem with uh, you describe with efficiency is that there are things that can disrupt our sleep. Efficient sleep is the uh, amount of time sleeping as compared with the amount of time in bed. So when you're young and healthy and a good sleeper, the, the amount of sleep and the time in bed are pretty close. But if you have disordered sleep, 
if you have pain, if you have breathing problems, this sleep can be disrupted. And so then your sleep is much less efficient. You're in bed, but that time you're not always sleeping. And when your sleep is being disrupted, it's difficult also to go through the normal cycles. And we need those cycles to, uh, to when we awaken, to have proper attention, but also to do our pruning and consolidation while we're asleep. So please correct me if I, un I understand. Sleep efficiency includes every, every part of the sleep cycle, right? Absolutely. Okay, and, and what can happen? It can happen that so people could actually... Um, Could actually be disrupted in in the sleep in any of the phases, and uh, what is the what is the impact of that disruption on the on the person on the brain health? Well, there there are numerous impacts of disrupted sleep, and they absolutely include issues of brain health, as we talked earlier about the drainage of. The, the toxins, typically uh, amyloids that are connected with dementia, you would not have the, the proper drainage there. Um, but people who are underslept also find that they cannot attend properly. Um, and what, what that means is they are at more risk for falls, more risk for crashes or accidents. Even medical errors can be related to uh, poor sleep efficiency or disrupted sleep. Oftentimes people are not aware that their sleep is disrupted and not aware that their attention is limited. This can be very dangerous. As you can imagine, someone gets in the car and starts driving when they can't attend and they're not adequately slept. What if they're a truck driver, right? So, um, There's that overt behavior piece. And then there's problems with learning and retrieving memories. Just for, uh, before we go into learning, I just have a, a sincere question. How a person cannot be aware that its own sleep has been disrupted? This is, this is pretty fascinating. But remember that your conscious memory is not fully online when you're asleep. So, okay. uh, for example, uh, one thing my research colleagues and I did was record hospital noises. Um, we were concerned about how poorly patients described their sleep in hospitals. They couldn't tell you what woke them up or how often, but mostly they would be so tired. So we decided to record the sounds that happened in hospitals bring those sounds into the laboratory and then play them back to healthy sleepers and watch their brains and watch their heart rates. And we could see that at certain levels, the hospital sounds were actually waking them up. We could see this from their brain waves. And yet in the morning, while they might report that they were tired, they couldn't begin to tell you how many times or by what were they awakened. Um, The same, the same thing happens with disorders, for example, of breathing, uh, one which is called sleep apnea, where the person literally isn't getting enough air while they're sleeping and their, uh, 
brought quickly awake because it is as if they're suffocating. So they take a gasp. Uh, maybe then they fall back asleep. In the morning, again, they might feel tired. Maybe their mouth is dry. But they have no idea that when we record their brain waves, we can see their sleep being disrupted over and over and over during the night. This is, yeah, this is why if a person perceives that they're unreasonably tired, it's, it's important for them to get their sleep tested because we don't necessarily at all have very good insight into how poorly we're attending or how poorly we might be sleeping. Yeah, and I think now you mentioned testing the sleep, and, and I think there's a lot of interesting technologies out there that can actually help people with that. Uh, there are apps you can go get at the App Store, like Sleep Cycle, that will help people basically based on noise, like you said, to track these cycles and show the quality of the sleep. And that's kind of a very simple, basic tool that people can use. I've tried it myself over, well, basically for years now. And it's quite obvious to see that there can be huge variations in in my sleep quality, uh, even over one night. And uh, something I can highly recommend people just to try it out. It can, you can do it on a smartphone or a tablet or something like that. And it's completely right. so. So that Right. Right. A absolutely. Uh, most of these look at your motion during sleep. And something we haven't yet touched on is that different stages of sleep allow for different amounts of movement. So, for example, when you are in dream sleep, literally, uh, it's as if you're in paralysis so that you don't get up and act on your dreams. Uh, it's an actual disorder. If you're moving and acting on your dreams, it's actually a sleep disorder. We should be immobile. So one of the things that the typical um, uh, app will offer you is a record of your motion during sleep. Now, for the most part, this actually is pretty helpful. The one downside is if you have insomnia, that is you're, you're, just, you're not sleeping, but you're a person who just lays there and doesn't move, mm -hmm. then the only way to know that you're awake would be to actually look at your brain waves. Mm -hmm. So... Um, that's the one place where just uh, recording motion doesn't give you all the information you need about your sleep. Sure. And so if you actually were moving during your dream state, that is what sleepwalking is all about, I guess. Well, um, uh, there are a number of uh, sleep disorders that um, we call parasomnias. And uh Sleepwalking would be, would be in fact, one of those. There's also something called um, sleep behavior disorder in which people are moving and thrashing during their sleep, uh, during their dream sleep. And there are, other, there are also other disorders of movement during sleep like restless leg syndrome. And these, uh, these disorders may, may happen more or less in different stages of sleep. If we were looking at your brain in the lab, looking at your brain waves during the lab, we would also be recording how your eyes were moving uh, with uh, special electrodes. And we would look, be looking at your muscle activity and we would be watching those along with your brain. 
so that we could see how they were uh, coordinated and whether something was in fact going wrong. But imagine nobody knew any of this. I mean, it's it's a hundred years ago that we first understood how active the brain is during the night. Before that, when people were asleep, it, it could almost pass for death. And yet so much is happening. Joe, I, I, I have another curiosity. Um, so if we could dig down into something that you mentioned before. So you mentioned that deep sleep uh, has a huge impact on uh, on memory and cognition, and uh, and I, I we also mentioned learning. So um, I was wondering if you had uh, if you could elaborate on how how learning and um, how, how learning happens in sleep. What is the impact on sleep on uh, memory and cognition, and uh, what can disrupted sleep uh, affect on our memory and cognition uh, if we indeed if we have disrupted sleep. Uh, would you be able to elaborate on this? Well, we know that uh, that the first thing uh, that goes wrong with disrupted sleep is the failure of attention. And if you can't attend properly, of course, that's the first step in learning. So um, then on top of it, what does manage to get through if you're not sleeping then the pruning and enhancement of the neurons that happens during sleep is not occurring. So uh, what we find, interestingly, is that what, what is, is remembered and the mood that comes through tends to have a negative bias. That is, um, if I gave you a series of faces to look at, and then asked you later uh, if you had slept to remember, uh, you would remember them equally. But if you hadn't slept, you would be more likely to remember the unhappy looking faces, the negative. So we call this a negative bias. I can imagine this having some evolutionary value, some protective value, Because if you're in a very bad situation so that you can't sleep, it's important that you be able to remember threats, right, to your health and safety. But do you want to live a life of negative bias? That the things that, with your limited remembering, the things that you're most likely to remember will have be negative? And furthermore... Furthermore, we know that uh, the underslept also uh, lose some of their empathic capacity so that their connections with other people can be impaired. Imagine if you are an underslept doctor who is trying to treat patients and uh, your empathy is limited by your exhaustion. Not good. Mm. So sleep both helps us kind of clean up in the memories. And we, we know also from, from cognitive science that it's also helping us consolidate new skills. So we're replaying patterns while we're sleeping or a particular skill that actually makes that skill more effective the day after we've slept, right? That's, that's such an important point. 
that, uh, and, and I hope if the students are listening, they will very much hear what you have said, because we know that if you're learning and practicing before you go to sleep, then in the morning, you will, in fact, do a better job than if you have not slept. And yet students feel that they should stay up all night and keep studying rather than taking the time to enhance and consolidate what they've learned. It's quite astonishing that this can be accomplished by sleep. Yeah. So sleep is doing a lot of great things for us, right? It's helping us kind of uh, sort through whatever we have had of inputs during the day, what's important, what's not important. It's helping us kind of strengthen the key memories or abilities that we might have acquired during the day. And it's helping us probably also save us from the worst of whatever negative experiences and trauma we might have had and kind of smooth out our experience a little bit. But there's also another aspect that I think is is quite well-researched in uh, in sleep science, and that's kind of the, the connection between sleep and your ability to manage stress and your mental resilience. Could you talk a little bit about that? Um, the... the uh Managing of the stress and resilience. I mean, my, my favorite research on this actually uh, relates to small children. And what they did was take, and I think these kids maybe were only three or four years old. They were at the age where some people think about discontinuing their naps during the day. So they took some of these children and let them have their ordinary naps and some not have, a, have their naps. Then they exposed them to some um, puzzles, but the puzzles weren't ordinary. They didn't have all the pieces. So the children would sit with the experimenter and they would be trying to put the puzzles together. The children that had slept would say, look, all the pieces are not here. Uh, I can't, I can't make this puzzle. Ha ha. Maybe you can help me. Is this, this is funny. Um, whereas the kids who had not slept would cry, wouldn't ask for help, would throw the pieces. Um, they, they had the uh, much less tolerance for frustration and uh, much less ability to try to continue to solve the problem or even to ask for help. I mean, that's really powerful as a metaphor for how we move in the world when so much of what we are trying to do is work together to solve problems, right? And and what is like, if we take it to the next step, right? So if you start having low quality sleep, like really low quality sleep, what, what can be some of like the worst case implications of that for a person? Well, the, I mean, the worst case implications um, can go uh, not just to uh, memory and cognition, but actually to physical health, where we see, for example, changes in appetite and the ability to feel satiated by food. So again, it's as if evolution developed this, you're having an emergency, and so you're holding on to all the calories that you can. But what this means is underslept people have a tendency to gain weight, to move toward obesity, even diabetes, uh, that there can be cardiovascular implications for all of this as their 
blood glucose is not uh, properly controlled. We have, um, as we talked about the, the dementias and cognitive issues, but also uh, pain and inflammation are increased. Um, immune function is not as good. If you have the flu shot and then you don't sleep well for the days afterwards, you won't build the same antibodies as someone who slept well. And yet people are asking, I don't know, I had the flu shot, but I got the flu anyway. You ask them, well, what was it like the nights after the shot? And they say, oh, I flew from Massachusetts to California. I was up all night then. And so it's not a surprise. These are all uh, all protective elements of sleep, all contributions of sleep to health and well-being that most people are not fully aware of. They think, uh, oh, I'll take a little time away from my sleep and I'll be more productive without realizing that past a, a certain point, your health and productivity actually drop from limited sleep. You're not helping yourself at all. This, we would say, um, is part of the modern experiment that we have undertaken where, you know, we are um, have a 24-7 technology where we're exposed to artificial light at night. We don't get adequate sunlight during the day. And, of course, a sleep uh, evolved to run, circadian rhythms evolved to run on sunlight. Uh, we expose ourselves to substances like alcohol and caffeine, over-the-counter medications that have an impact on our sleep without being aware of that. Um, and then we sleep in environments that are often uh, uh, disrupted by noise, like we talked about in hospitals, um, often not dark enough. Some of us have pets that want our attention during the night and will jump up and rub your nose during the night and meow at you. Um, so uh, there, there are numerous uh, environmental and behavioral uh, interventions that we can take just to enhance normal sleep. Hmm. And what would like some of the easy ones of those be for, for any normal person? I would say, you know, most uh, most important, of course, is as you touched on earlier, is having the adequate time in bed to start with. So, you know, seven and a half to nine and a half hours of sleep uh, for adults, giving yourself even more time than that to actually be in bed. Having a consistent bedtime because your body wants to have consistent rhythms. So... If we we have what's known as social jet lag, um, where we stay up very, very late on the weekend, and then we have to get up for work on Monday, we're not functioning very well on Monday because we've disrupted our rhythms. Ideally, we're going to sleep and getting up at about the same time every day. And if you're adequately slept, you don't even need an alarm clock. You'll wake up naturally. Uh, we know that light is alerting. So during sleep, we want rooms to be very dark. But in the morning, we want to be alert. So this is a time when we would like to be outside and get natural sunlight. Uh, morning walks uh, with well-timed light exposure 
help with this alertness. And yet so many people, they go from their house into their car, into their office without having natural light. At least uh, here in the United States, we know that half of adults are not getting sufficient sleep. That's a lot. Um, uh, additional behaviors we would want to avoid uh, the computer screen for at least an hour before bed uh, because we know that the light of the screen, just like uh, morning light, is alerting. Sometimes people feel tired and they think, well, I'll just go in and check my email before I go to bed. And then they feel like they got a second wind. Suddenly they're awakened again because the light blocks um, uh, melatonin, which is actually the a substance in the body which triggers sleep. If you want to help with triggering your sleep, uh, keep away from the screen before bedtime. Also, we know a warm bath, for example, a hot bath and then a hot shower coming out and having the body cool off will help to trigger sleep. Uh, alcohol before bed, in particular, and even worse, we find for women can produce a rebound insomnia. So people feel like, well, if they had alcohol, this is going to have a sedative effect and they're going to fall asleep. And they may fall asleep, but they may wake up and then maybe be thirsty, have a headache and have a hard time falling back asleep. So alcohol before bed, not good. Coffee, uh, people report very different reactions to coffee. Somebody like me, you wouldn't want to sit next to me if I drank a cup of coffee because I'm already so wired. But there are some people, my brother, for example, my twin brother, who believes he can drink a cup of coffee before he goes to bed. Um, I would tell you if I actually looked at his brain waves, I would see that he is not sleeping as well as he would have slept if he hadn't exposed himself to the caffeine. So timing your coffee. So consistent, consolidated sleep. Um, yes, uh, a nap one nap during the day can be helpful, uh, even help with uh, consolidating memories. Um, but um, coming in and out of sleeping all, all day uh, tends to ruin your consolidated sleep at night. And for, for people who are caring for aging parents or for older listeners, ideally they get lots of light during the day, maybe have one nap uh, in the early afternoon, and then try to spend the rest of the time with some kind of activity so that they can get a good, uh, solid, consolidated period of sleep at night. I have a few colleagues that prayed me to ask you any recommendation for parents who have who needs to wake up in the night uh, for the kids. Ah, yeah, that's that's a very um, a very good question, and of course. Um, you know, if, if the world were different, there would be uh, many people helping to take care of an infant, not just the two parents isolated, and sometimes uh, having even to get up in the morning to go to work um, after having the sleep disrupted by the baby. There's lots of different uh, cultural perspectives on whether the baby should be sleeping very close to you, um, perhaps in a bassinet next to the bed so that the parent uh, doesn't have to get up 
uh, all the way up and go to a different room to get the baby. Um, but one of the things we know is that if you turn on a full light during the night to walk in to see the baby, then that's going to be alerting and it's going to be harder to fall back asleep. Thank you for that. Yeah. Um, Can I maybe, maybe I just want to paraphrase and summarize some of the things you mentioned for the listeners, Joe. So some of the things that you mentioned you can do to improve sleep is make sure that the room you're sleeping in is absolutely dark, as dark as possible to make sure that melatonin production is happening the way it should. And also the room should be fairly cool. So 70 degrees Fahrenheit, uh, that's about uh, 20, 22 degrees maximum Celsius for all the European listeners. Uh, yeah. yeah, maximum. And uh, reduce or completely eliminate alcohol and coffee consumptions. And coffee consumption has, a coffee has a half-life of six hours. So if you drink it six hours before going to sleep, you're still going to have half the coffee in your bloodstream, right? So you want to make sure you maybe stop drinking coffee around noon if you don't want it to affect you too much later on. And uh, no Netflix before going to bed. Uh, that's going to be a tough one for a lot, for a lot of people. But uh, that's how it is. <laughs> that that yeah. is tough. Um, we, we say do, do not have the screens actually in the yeah. bedroom. And if you have to watch in the evening, then having the screen uh, less bright and further away, not, you know, not very bright and directly into your face will help. Yeah. Some. And for those who insist on using their screens, I mean, some of the new operating systems actually have automatic blue light uh, filters. And otherwise you can use programs like Flux to basically automatically put on, help, yeah, put on a blue light, a blue light filter. So that's a very efficient way of making yeah. sure that you never get exposed to blue light from your screen uh, very, very late on or, or right before you go to sleep. But what about the types of activities that you then do before sleep? What would be good like pre-sleep activities in the last one or two hours before going to sleep? Well, you know, people often um, have a wind-down routine for their children. And maybe there's something to be learned from this for adults, that the child may have the warm bath, then perhaps uh, a story, maybe uh, a lullaby, some prayers, and they then ease into comfortable sleep. Most of us uh, had a kind of wind-down routine as children. There's something to be learned from that. We can condition ourselves to a wind-down routine as adults and uh, repeat that. I wanted to add, too, to um, the question earlier about if you are disrupted from your sleep, uh, for example, by the, the baby during the night, having a, a, a wind-down routine to get back into sleep could be helpful. And for some people, that might be even some calming music or some breathing exercises like a, like a meditation, a, um, a set of relaxation exercises so that you're drifting back into sleep and not going over in your mind what you have to do the next day and all the worries that you might have. Actually, I've been recommended to... Go ahead. I've been recommended to... Uh, do a like a, before going to sleep to do a kind of checklist of what do I want to achieve tomorrow to get to help me to sleep. That's at least what I do actually. 
uh, I thought that, that that was good. I think it's very good, a checklist and uh, to to put down the requirements of the next day on a piece of paper where you know that they'll be the next day so that you don't have to keep running them through your mind and remembering them. Just write them down and 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 say to yourself, I know that they're here and now I can just let them go. Um, there's there's nothing I need to do, no problem that I need to solve. And then remind yourself of that and then into the comfortable. Yeah, and that's bed. actually a that's a classic productivity technique as well to declutter your mind basically so you can focus on on one thing only and not a thousand thoughts at the same time. And as long as your brain knows you've written it down, it also feels that you've taken action on on the issue and that will automatically calm it down. So I think that's a great that's a great advice. Great advice. Yeah, absolutely. And also turn down the lights, right? You can start turning down the lights maybe a couple of hours before going to sleep. You can already start not having full-on lighting in your apartment. Right. And happily reminding yourself that because you're doing what you can to get the good sleep, that you will, in fact, do a better job with these things that you have written yeah. down. I, I think it's a, it's, a, it's a very good advice, not only for me. I mean, I, I, tend, to, I tend to write down as well to get out. Um, as I'm, I'm characterized by un, unstructured thinking. So in order to allow myself to put structure from my unstructured thoughts, then I need I write them down and then I structure them. So that's uh, and I'm sure that listeners might be curious about it. And so uh, we we won't today we won't have time to go into what what to do when you can't fall asleep. I think that's a whole episode for itself. But uh, I, I want to kind of backtrack a little bit to to the impact of bad sleep potentially on your mental health because we talked a little bit about stress resilience, right? And of course, that's a part of mental health. But what about stuff like anxiety, depression, and all the kind of more serious conditions? You can, not that stress is not super serious. It can be for sure. But what about those other types of conditions that we normally think of as illnesses or diseases? You know, uh, we're learning more and more about this. Um, much... Uh, much suffering that comes from mental illness comes with poor sleep. And we're beginning to more understand how much poor sleep can initiate or exacerbate uh, mental illness and how much the mental illness itself interferes with sleep. So when intervening to improve uh, depression, for example, sleep is one of the things that we want to try to normalize because poor sleep can have, can get into a negative cycle where you sleep worse, you get more depressed, um, or you get more anxious because you're not sleeping well. So sleep is one of the places where we know we can intervene. Um, I think, uh, Along with what we might think of as um, uh, major mental illness, there's also there are also seasonal mental health issues, and a lot of research relating um, 
seasonal, what we call here seasonal affective disorder, and which uh, sometimes is known as seasonal depression, where the uh, the imposition of darkness, uh, which includes less activity, less light exposure, also brings about uh, mood and mental health problems. So intervening there um, by improving sleep through changing the amount of light uh, to which the person is exposed. So there are also uh, ways of working on sleep by uh, if one of the, the, um, the problems with sleep is not getting enough oxygen, there are ways to uh, enhance that for individuals. Um, there are also uh, people can get into a cycle of self-talk or negative beliefs that can get in the way of their sleep. So there's something known as cognitive behavioral therapy, where we actually look at uh, the kind of self-talk a person is, uh, is experiencing and how that is getting in their way um, and challenge those beliefs and help them realign them in a way that uh, serves to improve their sleep and therefore their mental health. Absolutely. Super interesting. And certainly us speaking out of uh, Copenhagen, Denmark, having very, very dark, long winter seasons for over six months. We, we know very well in Denmark, we call it winter depressions. And that is what you call seasonal affective disorder. So that's kind of just the, the, the mainstream layman's term that we're using here in Denmark for, for people who actually get seriously depressed over, over the winter time. And, uh, and some of the type of interventions that people are doing or that, that have some positive, seems to have some positive effects are, are light interventions. So basically blue light or light spectrum lamps that people can have on their desk during the day, et cetera. And that, uh, that can actually affect their moods quite significantly. Can, can have a really powerful effect. I think the timing of this podcast uh, recording Today uh, in, is the, uh, the beginning of a weekend in which um, uh, on Saturday night we will uh, push the clock ahead so that the sun will be setting at what we see as a later hour. Well, I mean, many people are happy that there will be light when they get out of work uh, and when they're coming home. Um, there's one, though, consequence that was not foreseen, and that is for the people who are normally underslept and already perhaps not attending very well, giving up that extra hour of sleep can have an impact. And there's, there's actually research showing that car crashes increase by about uh, 10% right after this time change. So... Um, while we're happy to have the light increasing, we also, many of us, especially those who already have limited sleep, need to take precautions for the few days before this time change and get some extra sleep so that when we're going to work on Monday, the first work day with the time change, we are uh, attending well and are protecting our safety and that of our uh, that's drivers. a great perspective and uh and I, th I think it's really interesting that that this type of you can say <clears throat> time manipulation that 
that we've done or agreed on on a global scale originally was to make people more industrious and uh, adjust to the timing. But basically, it's a global sleep disruption that we are that we're all uh, subject to. But it's great that there's something then, as you say, that we can do to kind of prepare for it, to make sure that we're pretty well rested leading up to such a, a time change. Yes, and I think I think um, we're not an agrarian society anymore. And the initial claim was that this was to uh, give light to the farmers in the morning, uh, which they which was limited um, for them. But I, all of this is uh, subject to reanalysis now, and we may see a time when we don't have these changes back and forth anymore. Um, the, another, uh, another area they're looking at is trying to match uh, people's requirements to the time when they're most likely to be able to attend. Um, we do have shift work in this country, and we have people who work during the night, which is difficult for their, for their health and for their uh, memory and cognition. But also we have school children, especially adolescents, who are going to school at a timing that doesn't perfectly match what their circadian rhythms would suggest would be the best time for them uh, to learn. Um, adolescents uh, have a sleep cycle that is pushed later. So they want to go to bed later and they want to get up later. So experiments are actually being done uh, in school systems to try to change the school time to see how much difference it makes. And the initial data suggests that kids learn better. There's more teacher satisfaction, less absenteeism, less depression, fewer colds. So it really does matter that we are aware of our sleep needs and that we uh, uh, take the effort to attend to those and match them so that we can be our happiest and function at our best. So, well, just uh, so you actually would confirm that uh, that, um, that children would have different um, different sleep uh, needs, and then actually they might might it might be better for their learning to wake up later. So that's what you meant with the with examples with the, um, the examples that you were mentioning. Right. And of course, this is, you know, this is um, to to institute this, to implement this, especially if children are going by bus or if there are children of different ages in the family and school is starting at different times. Parents have to get to work. Um, should we reorganize all of this so that children can be, uh, adolescents can be their happiest and healthiest and learn their best. You know, many people think we should, but it's, it's not, it's going to be disruptive to make these Thank changes. You. Thank you for the, the specification. Actually, so far we have been talking about solutions that, or best practices that we as, uh, we can uh, try to um, apply to our, to our lives. Uh, but do you have also recommendations for, uh, uh, and best practices for primary care. So any recommendation that we could provide to, for example, doctors or therapists uh, that are um, that are related to 
uh, improving sleep and uh, helping their patients with that's that's a great question. Uh, it it is surprising, and I I actually talk about sleep to uh, groups of all different ages, and I am always surprised when I ask uh, how many of you have difficulty with sleep, and of those of you who report yes, how many of you have discussed this with your doctor, and it's surprising how few people, in fact, at least in the audiences with whom I'm speaking, say that their doctor has asked them about their sleep or have raised this issue. Um, and so uh, I typically uh, will offer materials to the audience uh, about how sleep can be screened in primary care. And if they have difficulty sleeping, to make sure that this is one of the things they bring up with their doctors because as we've discussed today earlier, there are numerous implications for poor health, uh, a safety and well-being related to inadequate sleep. And sometimes the solutions are simple changes in behavior and improvements in environment. So uh, we want to make sure this gets onto the radar of caregivers so that people can undertake these changes. There are also, as we know, health problems that can, serious health problems that can interfere with sleep. People with spinal cord injuries and chronic pain, for example, can sleep badly. Um, and we want to make sure that people who are treating for those disorders are also aware uh, of the implications uh, for uh sleep problems and what might be done to help with those, because then the, uh, the, the patients are more likely to thrive in their rehabilitation, in their recovery, in their coping with their illness over time, if they're well slept. That's great. That's, uh, that's good advice. Um, can, we, can we move also into, into another area that we touched, uh, but we did not dig into, which is the, the the impact of external environments on sleep and what could be solutions uh, to the solutions that could be applied in a hospital design environment design of uh, of uh, of uh, residential um, and and our own ha house maybe also office design if uh, that could be relevant uh, from your experience. Um, Yeah, uh, absolutely. Let's let's begin with office design because that's for most people a um, a day issue, not a night issue, and it's an environment over which they may have less control. So, trying to daylight an office—that is, having as much window light as possible—or uh, if um, If artificial light has to be used, trying to use uh, spectrums of artificial light that are closer to natural light. Um, and having Even having breaks from the office where, where a group may go outside and just do a little walking together and get natural light. Um, hospitals are more, are more complicated in some ways than offices because we have a lot of disruptive technology in terms of signals of alarms, 
and talk between caregivers so that the rooms themselves need to be designed uh, with materials and surfaces that while um, helping with infection control also can limit the, uh, the spread of noise. Uh, doors can be closed. Um, patients can even be offered headphones or earplugs and, uh, and even um, masks so that if lights have to go on during the night, say um, from a hallway or so forth, that they don't disturb them. It's interesting, while you can change the design of a building, the harder thing to change actually is human behavior. So the night care routines that patients experience, where someone comes in literally to wake them up and to take their blood pressure. And when you're first awakened, of course, and you don't know where you are and you're disoriented, maybe you're, maybe you're scared, uh, your blood pressure is, is going to be higher anyway. So when patients are stable, to find a way not to wake them up during the night for blood drawing and so forth, to set up uh, the timing of medications in a way that there's as little night disruption as possible make an enormous difference for the patients. And we we've actually have studied this and found that if you change these night care routines, you can improve the outcomes for patients. But as I said, human behavior is hard to change. Easier to change Absolutely. the way you design a building. Okay, Joe. So, so before wrapping up, we have a maybe one last question. I mean, the the, the topic uh, of today's podcast is is the mysteries of sleep, right? And we've covered quite a lot of those. We've we've really uncovered a lot of really interesting both the knowledge about sleep and and uh, implications of sleep. But what are some of the topics? left to discover in uh, sleep research and uh, science? I think you know, the, there are many, many uh, interesting areas that are under investigation. Some of these include um, uh, medications and circadian rhythms. We know that different times of the day, our metabolisms work, work differently. So when is the best time, for example, to, to do chemotherapy? Uh, even in terms of foods, uh, we're better to have our proteins in the morning and our carbohydrates later in terms of enhancing sleep and, uh, and not gaining weight. So we're interested in the, the differential impact of medications and foods at different times of the cycle. Uh, there's much more to learn about sleep and exercise. For the most part, exercise seems to be sleep enhancing, but there's discussion again about when, what's the best time to have this exercise. We're interested in sleep and aging. And as we talked about uh, a little bit earlier, if we could enhance, especially deep sleep, would that be the fountain of youth? Would that have an impact on, on the immune system, on, uh, on memory and cognition? Uh, people believe this may be the case, and there's a lot of effort to enhance uh, deep sleep with technology. We'd like to understand more about uh, why things go wrong with sleep. Uh, so there are people who have a, 
a disorder known as narcolepsy, who fall asleep involuntarily. And this is believed to be uh, a result of autoimmune problems. So what can be learned from those mechanisms and how can we um, either prevent or treat this so people with this problem um, can sleep better? So what we would like is sleep to be um, efficient and fully refreshing. What we would like is to be able to improve sleep across the life cycle. That means for, for uh, babies, for adolescents, for learners, for the parents of those babies and adolescents, and for the parents of those parents, the aging population, many of whom uh, have serious sleep complaints. So there's, there's very much to be done. As I said earlier, it's like being an astronaut. New things are being discovered every day. Are you allowed to tell us uh, what you're actually uh, like excited about right now? Some uh, specific project or, or, or research uh, uh, or side project that you, you are putting your head, uh, scratching your head against uh, I think, um, at the moment? Uh, I think, as I mentioned earlier, I think the school start time uh, issue is a very interesting one, whether or not science can really inform policy? How much do we value what we discover? Do we value it enough to act on it? Um, and I would say uh, the other piece also mentioned is the enhancement of deep sleep. And what technology could we play certain barely perceived tones, for example, in certain patterns during deep sleep to enhance sleep? And there are actually people who are working on this and having some, um, some good impacts. Uh, another place is uh, related to the uh, obesity and diabetes epidemic that we have here. Um, counseling people, and, and some of this is now uh, being organized through artificial intelligence sort of nurse coaches who can be available uh, to uh troubled sleepers 24 hours in a way that a living a sleep coach can't and to help them with their beliefs and their behaviors and organizing their environments so that their blood sugar is better controlled, their appetite isn't, uh, isn't running away with them, and they can work their way back toward health. Do you have uh, the name of any of those artificial intelligence nurses? Is that something that patients out there can can access right now? Well, the, uh, the the company that has been working on that is known as Lark Technologies. And they are at this point uh, working on scalability, enhancing this to the point where a significant number of people who need it could be using it at the same time, and then helping with uh, access so that insurance companies who are uh, responsible for the health care of the payment of the health care of these patients can uh, make this available to people. 
So um, there's, you know, there are, there's what we can do individually. And then there is what is provided by our, our healthcare providers, what is provided by our insurers, what our community can do to enhance our sleep. And ideally, we can bring this science together so that everyone who has a stake uh, and a role in enhancing sleep can, can act on that. And then the population will all be the beneficiaries. So we, we will uh, just inform our listeners that actually all the, the best uh, practices for good sleep and uh, the technologies that we maybe mentioned that, can, that could help our listeners interested uh, will be uh, linked in the material of the podcast. Uh, so we will provide all this information, uh, also some articles that you share with us. Um, so that's something that we will... Um, we will uh, make available. And thank to you for sharing those. Well, and thank you for the opportunity to, to talk with you today and to share um, my wonder with the mysteries of sleep and my excitement about the progress we're making. Great, Joe. I'm just going to do a little bit of wrap-up before, before we let you go completely. And I also just want to mention another interesting sleep app out of the uk and that's actually for the people who can't fall asleep it's called sleepio um and also just want to mention another thing that any any app or technology that we mention on this show is uh, something we're doing that is not it's not sponsored we're not receiving anything from any of these companies if we if we do or did we will certainly uh, share that with people so we'll link we'll link that to the show notes and i want to just do a, a short wrap-up joe and then you can kind of if you want to add anything to that, you, you can do, the, do that. But I think it's important to kind of just uh, repeat what, what sleep is good for because it's, it's, fairly, it's a fairly long list. But obviously, but there are some, some key things that people should be really, really aware of. One is like uh, the neuroprotective effect, the fact that it helps our brain health in the long run by clearing out toxins and by strengthening the... The, the the networks and the, and the the neuron the neuronal pathways and the entire system of the brain is also closely related to growth hormone in the body and the brain and so basically to maintain and restore the body you need to sleep and without it you're basically allowing your body to break down so neuroprotective growth and then learning that that was one of the big things right for memory formation for learning new skills Sleep is super important, but it's also for your general cognitive functioning during your normal life, your ability to focus, to attend to things. And that's important not only for learning, but also for being safe, for being productive, etc. We haven't touched that much on the immune system and the cardiovascular system, but sleep has huge beneficial effects on the immune system and also for your general mood and, uh, and sense of well-being. And on the flip side, if we want to look at the negative effects of poor sleep efficiency and sleep quality, like uh, when you get sleep disruption, when you don't get enough sleep, um, then they're, they're quite severe as well. You suppress your immune system. You don't get, uh, you can get moody. You get e more easily stressed. So you have lower mental resilience. You have potentially a higher risk of mental mood, uh, mental disorders and, 
and negative impact on your mental health and uh, and an increased risk of a number of different diseases and physiological and mental issues. So really sleep is something worth paying attention to. And we've given you a lot of the the answers to how you can take better care of your sleep. And uh, Joe has given you a lot of those answers. And, and like Alessia said, we're going to put those in the in the show notes. And so I think that is that's just a, a maybe a wake up call to all the people <laughs> in modern society out there who are kind of trying to uh, where can I find an extra hour? Oh, maybe I'm just gonna. So you need to wake up to get to sleep. <laughs> and basically, yeah. So so really, really take take sleep seriously and and kind of pay attention to it a little bit and and probably not the place to cut corners, right? Given what you now know. So uh, I think that was that. That's my wrap up, Joe. And if you want to add anything to that, please go ahead. I think that was a terrific wrap up, Kim. I I guess I would close by saying there are very important reasons why we spend a third of our lives sleeping. I mean, sleeping is even critical to our very survival. Um, so tonight, get a good rest. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Joe. Thanks so much, Joe, and uh, have a wonderful day over there in Boston, and we're going to have a wonderful evening here in Copenhagen. Yeah, over here where it's only 12.30, (laughs) lunchtime. (laughs) So, again, thank you, and for the opportunity, and keep up the good work. Thank you, Joe. Thank you, Joe. Bye.